get settled in just because uh, I, I, it's a lot of information that I'm going to try to fly through today, and I want to make sure we capitalize on the time that, that we've been given. Um, before we start with a prayer, I want to start with a disclaimer. Um, I'm going to be covering a lot of counseling-based information today. However, I am not a counselor uh, yet. So I, I, I'm currently pursuing a degree in mental health counseling, and I'm about one semester away from having all of my coursework done, but I have not actually met with clients. I have not actually come into sincere counseling situations. Um, even my counseling interactions with you know, spiritual-related topics is very limited. Um, so I'm going to be sharing with you a lot of head knowledge, um, and, and please forgive me for that, but I hope with time to be able to back up the head knowledge with some real-world experience. Um, and, and Lord willing, uh, some of you will have some real-world experience to, to share on this. So um, additionally, this is a lot of information, uh, and, and counseling is a, a big field. So unfortunately, that means I won't be able to cover everything that encompasses this topic because this is, it, it's, it's enormous, what I hope to do is to be able to get everyone thinking a little bit about this topic, give you some warning signals as how to recognize it, and some general ideas and strategies for how to work with people to handle it. Um, and with the Lord's grace, we'll get through it. So with that said, let's invite him into this conversation to, to guide it. So let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this time that we've been given as a fellowship to consider the ways in which thou hast called us to help one another and the many obstacles that might come across that would prevent that work from being done, whether by the machinations of the devil or the workings of our own hearts, which would prevent us from coming to know thee better. We pray, Lord, that thy spirit would be thick in this place so that only that knowledge which was ordained by thee would be shared and in all of our hearts, we might be inspired to greater sense of being servants and helpers and leaders in this world that so desperately needs spiritual direction. Uh, be with all of us in all things this day, Lord, and in camp this week in particular. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, having disclaimers out of, out of the way, um, if you are here, hopefully you are here for the uh, Forum on Resistance titled, I Do but I don't. Uh, meeting resistance in counsel counseling relationships. Uh, my name is, is Rob Freund, if you, if you don't know me. Um, I'm, I live from, in Coconut Creek, uh, and as I mentioned, I'm pursuing a, a degree in mental health counseling, so this is, this is my passion. This is what I really love. So before I start talking about resistance, I want to talk about some differences between secular counseling and spiritual counseling, because there are very important differences. Um, and if you're ever interested in learning more about counseling, you need to make sure that you make these distinctions in your own life, uh, because it becomes very easy to get swept away in the humanistic ideologies of uh, the counseling world. Nevertheless, there are very valuable pieces of information and tactics that are useful in a spiritual context. context. So just to start off, some of the basic differences are um, in secular counseling, strengths tend to be specific to the individual. It's about what they bring to the table. 
Um, any direction that takes place needs to be based on what that individual is looking for. What are they hoping to get out of their time with you? Where do they want to go? Uh, one of the popular sentiments in counseling is that when people come to you for help, it's because they're stuck, and our job is just to get them unstuck and on their way. Uh, additionally, change is enacted and perpetuated by that individual. So any change that's going to happen is going to be done by their own gumption and their own willpower. Uh, in spiritual counseling, everyone does have specific strengths that they bring to the table. Uh, however, any limitations that might exist that would prevent them from achieving something that would seem otherwise impossible disappears when the Holy Spirit starts to interact in their lives, as I'm sure we've all experienced in our own uh, interactions with the Lord. Uh, direction is no longer specific to the individual, but rather the Word of God, because it is His truth that we are basing our counsel upon. Uh, the, the caveat there is that the individual determines whether or not they want to adhere to that instruction and that truth. And change is, is initiated by that individual because we all know that the Bible says that, that uh, our salvation and our life in Christ is a proactive venture. However, uh, it, is, it is fulfilled and perpetuated by the Spirit and its interaction in our lives. So, really, the difference between uh, spiritual counseling and sexual, sec, excuse me, secular counseling is limitations. In secular counseling, you are limited by what the client brings to the table and what the client wants. And in spiritual counseling, it is all about what God wants and what God can do with that individual. And the, and the opportunities are really limitless. So, going in with that understanding... We need, to, we need to prepare ourselves to meet with people who do not want to hear what we have to say uh, and who we might not want to deal with what they have to bring to the table. Before we ever act in a helping relationship or a discipling relationship, we need to understand the full scope of what's going on. And especially in, in our denomination in particular, we, we have a tendency to have... Um, not stereotypes, but certain benchmarks and commonalities amongst individuals. And I think that's important because it's part of what binds us as a fellowship. But additionally, each individual is unique in, in their own situation. And we need to be careful to make sure that we have a full understanding of that individual's situation before we ever start to intervene. I personally feel that this is along the lines of Matthew ten sixteen, And um, Brother Glenn is, is going to be my, my reader, so... Um, go ahead and read Matthew ten sixteen. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That, that wise as serpents bit is something that I think is crucial if you are ever going to attempt to dispense advice or help someone. Um, I think that's the one time it's okay to be snake-like because we need to be perceptive and we need to be subtle in how we are evaluating what that person is bringing to the table. And I, and I included this, this quote where it says, when a person is not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't expect him or her, or her to have the same viewpoint or maintain the same lifestyle as one of God's children. And if we are doing spiritual counseling where we're working with a soul who wants to become a Christian or, or someone who doesn't know if they want to become a Christian, but is curious about it, we need to understand this and we need to try to join them where they are at that point in time. Not to stand on a hilltop and expect them to come with us or come to us, but rather meet them where they are in their journey and walk with them as Christ would to the point where he wants them to be. 
And, and so we can't, we can't go into a situation uh, with a person who is a non-believer and treat them with the same love, with the same expectation of maturity and perception that we would a seasoned believer of 15, 20, 60 years. Um, so one of the things I have on here is, is determining their state of change. And this is where some of the psychobabble is, is going to come into play. But um, each person, when they have a situation or a problem that they're dealing with, has a certain point that they're at. Uh, in terms of the resolution of that. And we need to, in our perception, determine what that stage is. Um, the pre-contemplation stage is when a person really doesn't even realize that there's a problem. Uh, this might happen in a, a believer's life where sin has crept in unawares, uh, and it might be obvious to you, it might be obvious to their families, but they don't notice that there's something going on. And so if you approach them, they're going to say, it's not me that has the problem, it's everyone else. Uh, if someone is in the contemplation stage of change, they're going to acknowledge that the problem exists, but they're not ready yet to commit to doing anything about it. It's sort of similar to when you, you go outside of a store and you see an individual smoking a cigarette, and they look at it and they go, you know, I really got to give these up someday. That is a classic person in a contemplation stage. Because there's a realization of what needs to take place, but there's no desire or ability to commit to doing anything about it. And I would contend that, that for the 80-some-odd percent of the youth that we have at camp this year, they're probably in that contemplation stage. Uh, hopefully, by the leading of the Spirit, they'll move into the next stage, which is the preparation stage. And this is where a, a person starts to express their intent and their desire to do something about their situation. This is when they start reaching out to people for help. And, and unless a person is being brought to you by force or you are intervening of your own accord, this is where you're going to meet most people um, where they say, what can I do about problem X? Um, will you help me out with this? This is a good place to be. Um, when a person is in the, the action stage, this is when people are actually doing things. Uh, this is when they're taking steps and measures to resolve whatever situation that they're dealing with. And then when they get into the maintenance stage, uh, this is when um, a, the problem has been sort of resolved, more or less. But there's a maintenance that takes place uh, in which that, that work is, I want to say, perfected, uh, continued. Uh, I would say that all of us who are Christians, with regards to our salvation, are in the maintenance stage at this point where when problems come along, we address them. When situations come up, we deal with them. And the, the Lord points out to us the ways in which our lives need to become different. But this can also happen uh, with other things in, in a person's life. I don't want this forum to be specific to helping people to become converts because we as Christians have problems too. And so there may be a situation with gossip or lust or, or alcoholism or whatever the case may be. And we are going to need to meet with them wherever they are in that state of change in their spiritual walk and then get, then get them to the point of maintenance. Because as much as the Lord does perpetuate and continue the work that he starts in us, it is an effortful interaction with him where we need to be careful to help them maintain that. And uh, not to be critical, but I feel that this is one area in which our church tends to lack in that it does not continue the mentorship work, that it starts with individuals. We, we baptize people and we say, congratulations, we are so happy for you, brother or sister. Be on your way and grow. 
we need to remember that working with someone in the stage of maintenance is as important as working with them in any of the others. So how do we prepare to meet an individual in counseling and especially to gear ourselves up for possibly meeting them in resistance? The first is in our own spiritual relationship with the Lord. Uh, If your spiritual house is not in order, you should not be working with people to help get theirs in order. It's very much in line with what the Lord said when he said that we should be casting beams out of our own eyes before we try to pick a moat out of someone else's. Um, now, this is not to say that, that uh, you, know, you have to be a, a spiritual powerhouse or anything like that, or you have to be perfect in order to be able to work with anyone, because if that's the case, I'm in the wrong field. Um, but we should be conscious and aware of how we are striving to develop our relationship with the Lord and, and keeping ourselves in line with the Spirit if we hope to help people to do the same. The, the second important part of meeting someone in a therapeutic relationship and getting ready to meet re- resistance is the therapeutic relationship. And the therapeutic relationship is essentially the bond that you have with that individual. The, the rapport that you share with them that enables you to sometimes say things that they don't want to hear and not have them walk away completely. Um, I, I liken it to a bit of an elastic rubber band. Um, you can stretch it to a certain point, and if it's strong enough, it'll always come back. But if you stretch that rubber band to a certain point, if you've ever shot rubber bands at your sibling like I did when I was younger, that rubber band will break. And so if we are, if we are truly going to help someone We have to take the time and the effort to foster a genuine relationship with them. We have to have an authenticity of warmth, compassion, and empathy. And those are things that can only come through the Spirit. We we can't expect someone to be committed to getting better if we are not truly committed to helping them get there. And so if you, are, if you are going to meet someone out of a sense of obligation, I would say find someone else who takes a more genuine interest because the person you're working with can sense your commitment to them and they will respond accordingly. Um, another important thing is, is in that therapeutic relationship, you're helping the person gain a sense of hope, a sense that things can get better and they will get better. Um, hope is one of the most important determining factors on whether or not therapy is successful. And in our spiritual lives, our hope comes from the Lord. I would, I would suggest there is, it is one of the most crucial aspects of our spiritual walk. Um, Christ is our hope, and, and he gives it to us. And that's what makes life beautiful uh, for me. Um, the last, last thing, I think, is, is the most important, and that is confidentiality. Um, unfortunately, many times when we talk to someone about a problem that they're having, we have a tendency to feel burdened by it ourselves, or, or so concerned that we, we just have to share this with someone, whether it's, whether it's a, a loved one or a very close friend or something like that, that is wrong. Um, when a person comes to us for help, they're coming to us at, in privacy, and we need to be able to maintain that confidentiality. Um, there's the saying that loose lips sink ships. That's true in relationships too. And God forbid someone should halt the work that's being done in their lives because we can't keep our mouths closed. And if you have a problem with maintaining confidentiality, I would suggest you pray about building that up or working on that or don't counsel people. Um, I know that sounds severe, but it's, it's a huge issue. Um, no one needs to have their dirty laundry aired. Um, communication 
in a discipling or a therapeutic relationship is different than in a friend-to-friend or peer communication relationship. When you're talking with someone casually, you're hopefully doing it in love if you're a Christian. Um, uh, you know, uh, but typically that love is, is filial or, or brotherly. Um, it's, it's very instinctive. It, it's very uh, emotionally driven. Uh, it might be more prone to, to expression of emotion, particularly negative emotion. Uh, we tend to be more reactive to people when we talk to them in, in an uh, ordinary way. Um, and it's very direct. If someone says, I don't know what I should do about this, you say, well, I think you should do this. And then you go your separate ways. When you're working with someone in a counseling situation, um, it should be purposefully with love, but with an agape love. Um, and, and an agape love meaning that it should be intentional, it should be focused, and it should be looking at that, that situation in a logical, objective way that allows us to separate the individual and their value from the sin and context or situation that we find them in. Um, we need to figure out how to be engaged with them and yet objective at the same time. Um, our, our, our emotions and our reactivity to that individual and the things they say should be closely monitored, um, as well as their reactions to us. If, if someone starts getting really upset, we don't go our separate ways. We address what's making them upset. And if we are getting upset, we need to address that too, but maybe not in as directly confrontationally a way as we would in a casual relationship. Um, our, our communication is more indirect, more strategic. It's not about telling person, uh, a person something. It's about helping them figure something out. And sometimes we withhold what we know so that they can discover it for themselves. Um, and, and we align ourselves complementary to them as opposed to directly. Meaning, I'm not going to stand in front of you and tell you what you need to do. I'm going to come beside you and discover it with you. Um, Brother Glenn, go ahead and read uh, First Communication. Uh, First communications. First Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Bearing all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Um, I won't go through and read the whole list. We can all read. But these are invaluable characteristics to what it means to be a counselor. And that's one of the things I love about counseling and Christianity because this is where you see the science lining up with the spirituality. In order to be a good counselor, you have to be a good Christian. Uh, and, and in order to work with someone, you have to uh, be working towards having these qualities of true spiritual love. A love that is patient, a love that is not pretentious, and a love that does not glory in someone's misfortune or falling. And, and above all, a love that does not fail and does not give up. So, taking all of that into consideration, taking all this spiritual and, and relational preparation into account... What is resistance exactly? Um, I apologize because when I first started doing this, I just assumed that everyone knew what resistance was because I've been studying it. And someone goes, well, what is that? Um, and I realized, okay, this needs some explaining. Um, resistance is essentially opposition to change. 
Um, it might be direct, it might be indirect, but it's when you're working with a person and you encounter a situation where they don't want to do what you're suggesting or they don't want to do what they are suggesting. Um, it, it indicates that they're either unwilling to change, they're unprepared to change, or they are simply unable to change. Um, this could be this could be a pattern in their lives uh, that demonstrates that there's some sort of area of work. It might not be a specific issue, but it might be a trend that that is noticed. Um, you, you want to this is part of where the wise as serpents thing comes in. But you want to watch for themes in their lives. You know, are are, are there patterns of relationships that they tend to uh, habitually be bad in, and and maybe that's an indication that that there is some issue that needs to be resolved. Um, but at its basic level, resistance is designed to halt or interrupt that therapeutic encounter. Um, so what does it look like? Uh, it looks like a person arguing with you outright, countering your point with another. Um, they, they may become directly hostile. And, and I would say the stronger the res- resistance, the greater the hostility at times. Um, I think you're probably going to see arguing a lot more in, the, in that pre-contemplation and contemplation stage where they're not ready to even a- approach this issue. Um, interrupting. Um, interrupting is actually a form of domineering behavior. Uh, and and uh, if you're ever with someone and you're trying to get a point, point out and you haven't even gotten halfway through your, your sentence and they're starting on the next one, it's irritating, right? Well, Part of the reason why people interrupt is because they feel that on, on some level that what they have to say is more important than what you have to say. And I've been guilty of interrupting. I try to monitor it, but I'm, I'm human like anyone else. Um, they, they may negate what you have to say by blaming other people, by excusing themselves, uh, coming up with some reason for why this isn't going to work. Uh, they may try to minimize the, the, the uh, problem or grant impunity to themselves, meaning that they grant exception to themselves. Um, they may have a very pessimistic outlook uh, or, or just be really dragging their feet, kind of reluctant, um, or they may be totally apathetic uh, and, and just not care about what you have to say at all. Um, and lastly, I- ignoring. And this doesn't mean um, necessarily, you know, hearing what you have to say and then going their way and doing their own thing. Absolutely, that encompasses ignoring. But, but it may also be um, what's called stonewalling, where I'm talking to you and I'm trying to have a conversation with you and you are, you're looking down, you're looking away, uh, you're not nodding at all, you're not doing anything, and every now and then you might look out of your corner of your eye at me. That's called stonewalling. It's creating a barrier to the communication. Um, you can sometimes sense it in different statements that people make. So if someone says, I'll try, you've just met resistance. Because what a person is saying is that they have doubts about their ability to actually carry this out. Uh, Try to get out of your chair. Go ahead, try to get out of your chair. Okay, you can't try to get out of your chair. You either get out of your chair or you don't. I know that I should. This means that the person knows what needs to be done, and yet they don't want to commit to it. Yes, but. 
you will find so many yes buts in an ordinary conversation, not to mention a therapeutic one. But this is, this is a socially polite disagreement. It says, I acknowledge what you have to say. However, I have some form of information that supersedes or negates uh, what you're telling me. I've already done that and it didn't work. This is a form of excuse. I, I've tried everything. I've done everything that can be done and there is just no possible way that what you're suggesting is going to work. I can't help myself. This is a huge theme when it comes to sin in an individual's life, I think, um, because it denotes a sense of helplessness, uh, you know, a lack of resources to be able to accomplish something. And, and it may be that, that there are resources missing in that person's life that, that are preventing them from being able to do what you suggest. Um, however, we can help a person find those resources, and we know that the ultimate resource is in Christ. Um, I can't because... Um, when a person says, I'll try, or I can't because, they are already thinking of a circumstance in which that is going to fail. And if they are already envisioning how something is going to fail, they will make it so. Um, it's, it's kind of like the polar bear effect. You tell someone not to think about a polar bear, and what's the first thing that springs into their mind? A polar bear. Um, same thing with this. I can't because. They have already designed their failure in that statement. So why do we resist? Why does a person demonstrate resistance? It may simply be that they don't want to change. It might be a misalignment of your goals with theirs. Uh, It might be that the problem or the situation that they're facing serves some sort of a benefit to them. And and a lot of times people don't think about this, but but there might be a benefit in not being able to give up your your, uh, pornography problem. Or there might be a benefit in not being able to give up your your alcoholism. Or there might be a benefit in vacillating between whether you are going to commit to becoming a Christian or whether you're going to continue your life in sin. Part of of being an effective counselor is being able to perceive the, the benefits that a person is getting out of what they're doing. Uh, It may not be a healthy benefit, but it's something that they find preferable. And so that, that's part of what helps them to hold on to it. Um, they may do it in an attempt to balance the scales of power. This is one of the reasons why it's very important to try to meet a person with, with equality uh, and to treat them with equality and respect when we're working with them. We are not experts, and we are not authorities on the Word of God or that person's life. And so when we interact with them, we need to ensure that we refer to them with that respect and that compassion because they will sense that power imbalance and they will try to rectify it. Additionally, you may have someone who you're treating them very equally and they want to have the upper hand, and so they're trying to create a power differential. Um, It also may be the result of ambivalence. And ambivalence is essentially uh, being caught between two decisions, you know, between a rock and a hard place. Um, there, it's, it's caused by what we call approach factors and avoidance factors. And an approach factor is essentially something that is being taken into consideration, or maybe not being taken into consideration because they haven't recognized it yet, that, that draws the person to it. You know, I, I, am, I, am, I am drawn to becoming a child of God because of the freedom that I sense there. That's an approach factor. Um, avoidance is something that would push you away from a decision. So, uh, I'm drawn towards becoming a Christian. However, it seems very restrictive and it seems very confining and I just don't know 
if I can maintain that kind of a lifestyle. And so when a person is in an ambivalent situation where they can't figure out what to do, it's often because of some combination of uh, approach factors and avoidance factors. And normally you find both in, in both options. If you can stack the deck so that, so that you have more avoidance factors in the bad decision, so saying like, yeah, but sin makes you hurt inside, it affects you negatively, and ultimately it leads to death and separation from God, okay, that's an avoidance factor. And if you can add more avoidance factors onto that, suddenly those avoidance factors outweigh the avoidance factors in the appropriate path. Um, A person may not want to give up something that they find enjoyable. Um, They may not want to face a personally demanding situation. It's too much work, and it's too much stress. And so rather than cope with the stress of it, I will avoid it. Um, they don't want to face the consequences for behaviors. Maybe there's some restitution that needs to, needs to come into play. Or maybe the guilt that that person is facing over having committed action X or whatever the case may be is so great that they can't bring themselves to face it. Um, they don't want to risk failure. Uh, they may not want to risk the loss of their reputation, whether it's amongst you, uh, other Christians, or people outside in the world. Um, Or it may be that they're unable to modify some deeply held belief about their personality or something about themselves at their very core. And and this is where I think the devil is most insidious because this is where a person says, you are this. You can never overcome this situation because you are substantially and inherently flawed. Um, and, And as long as a person has a mistaken belief about themselves, like I'm worthless, um, they won't, any change that takes place will be what's called first-order change, meaning you're changing the situations, but you're not changing the essence of what's going on. And so you need to work with that person a lot to get to what's called second-order change, where there's a substantial internal change. Um, go ahead and read Acts 9, 5 through 6. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks perfect example of second-order change in the, in the Apostle Paul. Uh, someone, someone who had a very deep core value about how he should interact with the world, and the Lord pointing out, with him, out to him the emotional turmoil that his, quote, appropriate value system was causing for himself as well as for the rest of the church. And the Lord made a big intervention in causing blindness and all kinds of things in Paul's life to create that second-order change. Um, But it took place, and it happened. So what should we not do when we encounter this in uh, a relationship with someone? The first thing is preach. Uh, And I'm prone to preaching. For me, it's just easier to tell someone what they're supposed to do. Um, And and most of the time, we all feel the same because it's, it's obvious to us what, should, what the proper course of action is. But counseling is a bi-directional communication. It's not about you feeding them information or feeding them lines. It's about you putting something out there and them, put, them putting something out there and having this communication back and forth to each other to, to come to a, some sort of an agreement about what is going on and some sort of an understanding. If you are working with someone and you start preaching at them, the more you talk the less they talk. 
And eventually, you get to a point where you think everything is going great because all, all that they need to know is getting put out there, and, and they're nodding, and they're smiling, and everything is great, but they are not talking to you. And then they will leave that time with you, and they will maybe never even come back because they felt unheard and unappreciated. Coercion. Uh, power differentials, as I said, are never healthy in a, re- in, in a counseling relationship. You can't demand X so that Y will happen. And you can't say, you are not allowed to do this until this happens. Because that will instantly rupture the therapeutic relationship that you have with them. And, and I want to be careful with this, because I'm not suggesting that we say to a person, you know, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven without giving up this sin or something like that. What I'm suggesting is that you should never come out and tell them, this has to go uh, or for, for this to happen. Because what's better is for that person to discover that this has to go in the appropriate time that the Lord reveals it to them. And then it will go. And this will happen. Um, a lot of times we come into this when, when we're in... Um, conversion counseling. You know, what must I do to be saved? Okay, I'll tell you what you need to be what you need to do to be saved. You got to do this, this, this and this and this has to go from your life or else this isn't isn't going to happen. Um I remember a while back um hearing an instance about an individual who um was really into techno music, I guess, and they were seeking spiritual counseling and the person that they were counseling with said, "You cannot become a Christian until you give up this techno music." It cannot happen. The person didn't receive it well, and I don't know what happened to them. However, it would have been so much better to not come out and instantly attack that individual about their taste in music, but to work with them, help them to get deeper in the Word, help them to get a greater sense of communication with the Spirit so that the Lord can say, this is not healthy for you, and this needs to go. And the beautiful thing is that I've seen this in people's lives. You know, there, there's one soul who, who um, came to the church and... and um, wore makeup, wore jewelry, uh, and, and um, you know, all of a sudden they started wearing a head covering. It was beautiful. They're also still wearing earrings and, and everything, and it just, you know, for, for those in, in the church who are like, okay, there's a bit of a misalignment of spiritual expectations here. And, and so one individual said, should I go talk to her? Should I pull her aside and say that, that, you know, this really isn't what God wants? And the Spirit said to her, no, wait. And you know, that within a very short amount of time, all of a sudden the earrings came off on their own. And because, and, and she said, God told me I didn't need that anymore. That is what, what a, a, a gentle therapeutic relationship can do. Um, don't give up. Sometimes we get so frustrated that we just want to abandon that individual forever and just say, you make, it's your life, you make your decisions, you do what you want, I don't care. When you're ready to come do what you're supposed to do, come talk to me. No. True love never fails, never gives up. The only person who should be walking out of that door and saying, I'm done, is them. And then you do say, I'm here when you're ready for me. But you should never be the one to say, I'm I'm done with this. Um, And again, being directly confrontational. I know it's a lot of similarities. But counseling is part compassion, part manipulation. And I know no one likes to hear that, that you know, we should be manipulative. But I don't mean manipulative in, in terms of like being crafty and, you know, uh, tricking a person or anything like that. But manipulation in terms of sometimes withholding what we know so, so that uh, we can work with them more. Just because you have all the answers doesn't mean you need to share them right away. 
And sometimes it means phrasing questions that you already know the answer to about what's going on or wondering about something and then having them fill in the information. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, well, I didn't know about that. Um, It's a little manipulative in that sense, Um, but not in a deceitful way. So I'm not promoting lying or or anything like that. Um, Because, as I said here, um, if you have a person think that something is their idea, it's more apt to stick. And I think one of the reasons why sometimes new converts have such a hard time staying true to their new faith is because they were told what they need to do as opposed to discovering it and having someone help them discover it. Um, I'm not saying that our ministers and elders and and counselors are at fault or anything like that by any means. I'm not making excuses. Um, But I think that there are some instances where that has happened, and we need to try to help people to develop in a way that is more lasting. Ultimately, it's the Spirit's work. I I, I know I'm relying very heavily on the head knowledge here, but it really is the Spirit that makes it stick, and, and you can have... You can have them think it's their own idea and they still won't follow it because they're not listening to the Spirit. Um, so how do, we, how do we resolve resistance then? How do, we, how do we deal with this once it crops up in our relationship with that individual? Um, the first thing is to clarify what their goal is. Why exactly are you here? Um, you know, if, if, if you don't want to give up your alcohol, why, 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 why did you come to me for help? Um, and it may be that that person doesn't actually want freedom from what you think they want freedom from. Or your goal may be to get that person to a point where they are right with God, but their goal might be to uh, uh, assuage their guilt long enough for them to be able to carry on this, this bipolar lifestyle where they can have their cake and eat it too. Um, Richard Watts, who's a counselor in Texas, said that resistance is nothing more than a misalignment of the client's goals with that of the therapist. And so the follow-up to that statement in counseling is, so the therapist needs to realign their goals with the, with the clients, and then the resistance will disappear. So if that person wants to perpetuate in a homosexual relationship or, like, or something like that, and you're trying to convince them otherwise, you need to realign your goals so that they can pursue that lifestyle and, and help them with that, and then that resistance will disappear. Well, obviously, as Christians, we can't resolve our goals to, to aid and abet sin in a person's life. However... By becoming aware of what their goals are, we can realize, okay, there's a difference in what we're both trying to get out of this. So how can I work with them in a way that doesn't compromise what the truth is, but also gets them to be able to make a decision and make it with some salience, as opposed to the ambiguity of, I'm just going to ignore this, or yes, sure, I'll do that, but not really. Um, another way is, to, is what's called reframing. Um, Brother Glenn, go ahead and read Acts 17, 22 through 33. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that <clears throat> in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. Um, it Reframing is essentially taking what is already there and putting a new spin on it. Give the person a new perspective. I'm going to embarrass her, but my sister is a pro at this. Um, uh, my, one of my guilty habits is that I tend to be a bit of a spendthrift. Um, and so we can be in a store and I'll be like, Julie, check this out. This is so cool. And, and she, within two minutes, 
It's back on the shelf, and Rob is not making the purchase because my sister is really good at reframing the situation to help me see it from a different light. And so it's, it's subtly putting out there, well, maybe it's not that, maybe it's not that you know, your, your mother hates you. Maybe it's, it's that they're frustrated with the fact that you, know, you come home really late and she doesn't know where you are. Maybe it's that she's scared. And then the person goes, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't really think of it that way. All of a sudden, you've lessened that resistance. Um, another thing is to, to use the, the Columbo approach. And uh, I never watched Columbo, but apparently it's, it's about this uh, detective who was very, very brilliant but acted very, very dumb. And so he would, he would stand there with the murder and he'd go, now remind me how this works out. You know, I thought, I thought you said that you was at the bar when Miss Delaney was, was uh, over at the bank. So I, and, and in pretending to be dumb, he would basically give the killer enough rope to hang themselves and they'd be caught and carted away to the, to the jailhouse. Um, Go ahead with, with John four sixteen through 17. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In this thou sayest thou truly. Thank you. The Colombo approach allows us to say, I think I'm noticing something that you're not telling me. Or I've noticed an indiscrepancy. Am I wrong or am I right? And, and which, which is sort of a polite way of saying either you lied or something like that. Um, but, but it's a way of allowing that individual to also negate what you're telling them. Because you might be wrong. And so they can say, well, no, no, actually it's, it's this. But, but if, if you're coy enough with it, you can sometimes get a person to admit to something that they were never prepared to. You know, oh, wait a sec. I, I, didn't you say that, um, actually, I'm blanking on an example right now, so I'm not going to try to do it. But um, <laughs> if I had an example, I'd use it. But, um, you, know, you know, didn't you say, or, or uh, can you help me with this? Or I noticed that before you said, and now you're saying this, um, or what did you mean exactly when you said, you know, when they're like, you know, my mom's okay. Well, what did you mean when you said your mom's okay? You know, that kind of thing. Um, another important aspect of this is, is addressing nonverbal behavior. And, and I'm a nonverbal behavior junkie. I love observing nonverbal behaviors. This does not mean that I'm watching you all and I'm trying to dissect what's going on inside your heads. I just really think that nonverbal communication is cool. Because it encompasses eighty um, percent, no, sixty-five percent, fifty, fifty-five. Thank you, fifty-five percent of all communication. And then there's another percentage that is that is tone and intonation and and um, the the way we speak. And then the remaining very small portion is what we actually say. So sometimes paying attention to what's going on with a person's body is important. You know, observe what is their baseline behavior. How were they sitting when they first came in the room and sat down? And all of a sudden you suggested this, and they crossed their legs. Okay? That suggests that something happened that made them uncomfortable enough to, to cross their legs. Or maybe it's that every time they tell you that, yeah, I, 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 I was great. I read my Bible every day this week. Okay. 
suggests that something's a little off. So by paying attention to the nonverbal behavior, we can sometimes identify what's going on and even cut off resistance at the pass. So you say, I noticed, I maybe I'm wrong, but I, I noticed that when you were talking about reading your Bible, you kind of rubbed your nose and then you were talking about it again and you rubbed your nose again. Is everything okay in that area? I, I mean, is, is it really as good as, as, as you said it is? Or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. Um, and then they'll probably own up to it. The, the important thing is that when you're observing nonverbal communication, you do not want to jump to a conclusion. Um, you don't want to say, aha, they rubbed their ear, therefore. Um, Sherlock Holmes moments like that rarely happen. Um, it's in the patterns of behavior that we recognize that something's going on. So, yeah, maybe they, maybe they rubbed their nose when they talked about reading their Bible once. But if they're talking about reading their Bible later on and they are totally at ease and nothing's fine, they just might have had an itch. So notice what is different from the normal and address that in its patterns and its clusters of behavior. Otherwise, if you stand there and going, I caught you, I know what you're doing, uh, you've just ruptured your therapeutic relationship and that person is never going to speak to you again. Furthermore, they are going to tell all of their friends that you are a scary, scary person who is constantly attacking people. And I know because when I first started learning about nonverbal behaviors, I would go around to my family and say, oh, I know what you're thinking. And now they... I, they hate it. So uh, I've tried to uh, <laughs> I've tried to get better about that. Um, uh, one, one thing is that it, it's a way of communicating that I see you. I see all of you, and I understand that this might be difficult for you. You never want to call someone out on their nonverbal behavior in an accusatory way, but in a compassionate way. I, I notice this seems to be difficult for you. Um, another way to resolve this is to address the hidden benefits of what they're doing. Um, what is a person gaining from being on the fence? And I know I addressed it a little bit earlier, but, but why shouldn't they give up behavior X or problem X? That's what we would call a paradoxical, uh, a paradoxical intervention. By suggesting that the person doesn't change, you know, you know, you know really, why don't you just, you, you come to church regularly, uh, you, you go to youth group, you, you, you're very active with them, you're a nice kid, you're a good person, you know, and, and, and you have good friends, you're a moral person, so why, why even bother with this? You know, why not just keep doing what you're doing? And, and, and if you can, make it, and if you can um, make it both realistic and crazy at the same time, they will, they will start to go, no, I... But no, I mean, I mean, I have to become a Christian or else I'm going to go to hell. Yeah, but wait a second. You know, there, you can live a good life like this. Yeah, but, but no matter how good of a life I live, I'll still be separated from Christ. Yeah, but you don't understand. You can have it all, man. But I'll be miserable for my life. Okay, maybe you're right. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to work with this. Okay, um, I'm not saying that you should always suggest that a person do this because someone might be like... Good. Okay, I'll see you later. That person was great. Um, you need to be careful and judicious about how you try that and, and never let them leave thinking that you're condoning what is going on. Help that person work through their ambivalence. Um, we talked about ambivalence being a, a combination of, of attractors and um, avoidance factors. So, a lot of times when a person comes to counseling or, or asks for advice, it's because 
they have some intuitive sense of what is drawing them to something and pulling them away from it and drawing them away from something else and pushing them towards it, but they don't have an explicit understanding. And so if you can help them tease apart exactly what it is that is drawing them towards and pushing them away from this thing, whatever it might be, you can sometimes help them to to stack the deck or or tip the scales in one way or or the other. It, it might take a long time. It might, be, it might be asking them, okay, so what would have to happen in order for you to be willing to give this up? Or what would have to happen that would allow you to be able to give this up? And they say, well, I don't know. And then you have some brainstorming to do. Um, what, are, what are the strengths of it? How strong is this attractor? You know, how, how, how strong does the promise of heaven draw you to it? Is it kind of like a, you know, it's more of a glimmer out in the distance? Or is it this, this spiritual uh, uh, explosion that you just can't avoid at all? Um, is, is a life of sin, you know, kind of appealing? Or is it, is it every pleasure that's out there, and so therefore you have to go towards it? By determining the strengths of each factor, you can sometimes help them to figure out a a better evaluation or a more full evaluation of that attractor or repulsor so that that way they can start being pushed in the other direction. Um, 1 Kings 18.21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. One of my favorite examples of ambivalence, because it's a whole nation that's ambivalent. They don't know whether to choose God or whether to choose Baal. And you don't know if it might be that there's like some generational stuff, but for whatever reason, these people are not ready to commit to one or the other. They weren't a totally pagan people because they weren't ready to say, yes, we choose Baal. Maybe you say, I don't know. It took, it took a strong attractor and a repulsor to push them towards the, the point where they could bow on the ground and say, the Lord, he is the God. And that meant for Baal to fall flat on his face and for God to respond to Elijah's prayer in such a powerful way and such a dramatic way that not only did that, that uh, uh, sacrifice light on fire, but it and the stones and the water that was overflowing that trench was completely consumed. That was what it took to get the people to bow and say, the Lord, he is the God. And we need to be able to also do the same in others people's li- other people's lives or help them to discover that as well. Um, we also want to try to address any deeply seated beliefs or senses of helplessness that we might notice in the person. They might not even be aware of it because the devil is very good at lying to us and convincing us of something about ourselves. What was one time that things were different? What was one time that you actually were able to resist the temptation? What was one time where, where you didn't wind up screaming at your mother? And I have a great relationship with my mother, by the way. I'm using it as an example, but I'm not drawing from life experience there. Just My mom's going to listen to this, and I don't want her thinking that I don't like her or something like that. I never scream at my mom. Um, but what was one time that, that you got along really well with your mom? Or one time that you really wanted to yell at her and you didn't? What was going on there? What, describe what was happening in that situation. Was it, you know, what were you thinking? What was she saying? How was she saying it? What did you say? How did you say it? How did things turn out? Um, what specifically contributed to that difference between what usually happens and what happened that time? Um, 
So, okay, so what do you have available to you to help you to be able to maintain this? You know, you say that there's no way that you can give this up. But what resources do you have? Let's, let's list them. And, they, and, and if a person truly believes that they are helpless, they will not be able to think of one. And so it might take some gentle prodding and some suggestions that allow them to negate and think about it, mull it over. It might take some homework and stuff like that. But to combine a list of resources that that person has, both spiritual and physical, that can be combined and used as tools to help recreate that one time and help them to see that it's not, it's not just an exception, it's a reality. And if you can get a person to think of one time when it was different, then you say, aha, aha, so you said you could never have a good relationship with your mother. But this one time, it did. So therefore, you are not a, a horrible child who, who hates their parent. Otherwise, when they did that, you would have flipped out and just gone ballistic on them. Okay? It's about proving some of the indiscrepancies and then building on that. Um, ask them, what caused them to come see you in the first place? Why did they ask you for help? If you don't want help, why are you here? You know, if, if, if I mean, you don't want to say it like that because then psh, they're out the door. But, um, you know, why now? Why, why, not, why not a month ago? Why not three months from now? What, what caused you to come seek help at this point in time? And sometimes by coming back to base that way, you can, say, you can help them to realize, okay, other things have gotten in the way right now, and I've lost sight of what I really wanted. And you can some, then help to clear out some of the cobwebs. Um, it allows you to understand the motivating factors, too, because you don't want to assume that they're coming to you for a specific purpose, um, uh, as well as events that tip the balance towards not wanting, wanting to change or wanting to change um, or may have created some ambivalence. Um, and lastly, be open to the leading and the inspiration of the Spirit. This isn't from any counseling book. This is from my own thoughts. But if we truly believe that God can guide our words and our actions, we have to be completely reliant on him and his ability to say at a moment, when we're about to say something that we think is going to be life-changing and brilliant, uh, no, don't say anything right now. Or, or to say something that is completely unrelated uh, that, that you would never normally say or think to say or do that will have a life-changing impact on that individual because no one knows that person's heart like the Lord, not even themselves. And so we need to trust his direction in that spiritual, spiritual relationship. And I hope uh, we've invited him into that relationship at the start and every time we meet with that individual. So um, following through with resistance and following through with that relationship. It takes time. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 4, 3-5. Christ didn't come right when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And his sacrifice, oh, I hit my 50-minute mark. Okay, I got 10 minutes. Um, he, he didn't make the sacrifice right then and there. He waited several millennia when the time was at its fullest, when the, when the global infrastructure was at its most ripe to come so that the gospel could be spread to the four corners and everyone 
would have the opportunity to be saved. And in our own lives also, was it not so that Christ came at the fullness of our own time? He didn't call us right out of the womb. He didn't call us when we were in kindergarten. He called us at the point when our hearts were softest and we were most ready to realize that we were sinners and we needed him. And was it not so that that our faith uh, was, was born into completion and we became new creatures at the fullness of time? when we we had been properly prepared and the work of God had been completed in us, not before, not after, but at the right time. The same thing happens with counseling. And you may think that this person is ready. They should be ready to be done with this. Why are we still talking about this? It may not be the fullness of time for that situation. And so you need to be prepared to put in long hours with this individual because them getting better and them getting helped is worth it. It's part of our calling as Christians. It takes patience. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Um, so often our, our own flesh would rise up against us and the devil would manipulate us to try to destroy the work that's being done in an individual's life. And I would suggest that in con- spiritual contexts, that's even more so than in just a standard counseling session. The, the devil loves to have anyone go to hell no matter how it can take place. Um, and he doesn't want a person's life to get better even in a secular context because if their life is better in a secular context, they might just all of a sudden get to the point where they're ready to become a Christian or something like that. So he's going to hold them down secularly, but he's going to work even more nefariously in a spiritual context. And so we need to have patience. And we need to strive to maintain the unity that we have with that individual and our brothers and sisters. And that includes, again, the confidentiality and the respect for them and their problems and their weaknesses and those around them. Um, everything needs to be guided by God and his timing. And I I talked about the fullness of time, so I won't go into that again. Um, Allow the outcomes or the directives of the Spirit to be discovered by that individual. Um, Instead of saying, you should do X, ask them, what do you think God wants you to do? If you were having a conversation with the Holy Spirit right now, if the Holy Spirit was sitting in that chair, what do you think they would tell you? And if they don't know, say, all right, let's search the word and find out what, what it would tell you. And if it's not specifically in the word, we'll say, what do you know about God? What do you know about his nature, his expectations? Taking all that into account, what do you think he would say then? Allow them to discover it. Never, never, never try to just outright tell. And they may want you to. They may say, just tell me what I need to know. And say, I'd like to do that, but I can't. Um, change especially spiritual change, is a process of self-discovery and intimacy with God. It's a combination of both of those. And the more a person discovers about themselves, the more they'll be able to make an appropriate decision, an informed decision. Recognize your own limitations. Um, Know when something is beyond your scope or your ability, uh, and do not be afraid to refer that person or to defer if need be. If something is beyond your scope of help, you could do more damage by trying to, to continue to work with them. Uh, and, and with that, it might be you know, someone such as myself who 
is not always very confident in his counseling capabilities and so might work with someone to a certain point and say, okay, now I'm going to hand you off to person so-and-so or a person with a spiritual problem that I really don't feel confident in and say, all right, let's go, let's go meet with this brother or this sister and, and let's talk with them about this situation. Um, and especially if, if you notice that maybe something is going on biologically, um, maybe the person is demonstrating something that would suggest bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, or maybe this is a very severe depression that has nothing to do with sin, but is just a chemical imbalance that is causing them to be very depressed. Uh, you can pray about it all you want, but unless the Lord perf- performs a miracle, which he could do, that person will still be depressed. And, and that's the point when you say, okay, maybe we need to go try to f- talk to someone who can help us figure out a better idea of what's going on. Um, in closing, be willing to accept any outcome. And I know this, this might sound like heresy, but know that this is a decision and this is a path that is determined by that person in outcome, what I mean. The Lord is going to show them what they need to do, but it is their choice. And they, make, they may make a choice that you completely disagree with, but your role is not to convince them of the appropriate one. Your role is to help them to discover it and to make an informed decision. The, the convincing that, it, that it's an appropriate one takes place in the preaching and the teaching and the, the living out of the word in our lives. If all that is being done, all we need to do is help them discover it and the decision will be made. But you can work with a person and they may know everything that they need to do and they may still decide that they don't want to do the right thing. That's their choice. That's free will. And so you can't, you can't fight them on that. Um, Acts twenty twenty seven. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul there was talking about how he was free from the blood of all men because he had not shunned to declare the full counsel of God to those people. If we can say the same, then our duty is done. And as long as we maintain love and we let that person know that we will always be there for them, there's not much else you can do because you can't force someone to change and you can't force them to convert as much as it might break your heart. Um, I want to close with a quote by um, Jay Adams, uh, who wrote a book called Competent to Counsel. Um, He said, The use of human agency in counseling does not in itself bypass the work of the Spirit. To the contrary, it is the principle and ordinary means by which he works. We are the Lord's hands and feet and lips in this world. And so to be used in a, in, in a counseling relationship or an advising relationship or a discipleship relationship is an immense privilege because we are being used by God as a means to interact with that person and help create change in their life. And what could be more satisfying than to help other people? That's, that's all I've got. So we have five minutes. If, if there are any questions, I will answer to the best of my knowledge. Or if anyone has testimonies that they would like to share or anything like that, please uh, feel free. Um, like I said, there are brothers and sisters in here who have so much more counseling experience than I. Uh, so if anyone has thoughts or perspectives. If not, uh, thank you all very much for your attention. And... Um, if, you, if you'd like a copy of the PowerPoint, let me know.